Welcome to my digital talk on the US election. This series of conversations on the presidential election in the United States is possible thanks to the support of the Austrian-American Partnership Fund, which promotes collaboration and exchange between Austrian and US non-governmental organizations, universities and professional associations. I have a very special guest with me today, Peter Rao. Peter is a senior fellow at Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C., uh, where he writes and comments on the U.S. foreign policy with a special focus on Europe and the Middle East. Currently, he is leading an in-depth study on China's challenge, which will be also, or probably he's already, uh, actually has already uh, some research uh, findings on that matter, and we are going to cover this issue for sure. And he regularly briefs official delegations, news media, public intellectuals, and business leaders from around the world. Peter has also a special Austrian connection, and that's why I'm really pleased to welcome you uh, to my digital talk. And of course, it, as you might guess, my very first question to you is related to the US election. What are your own personal estimations about the potential presidential outcome? Uh, what is right now going on in Washington? What are the polls saying? Anything that you have? Uh, I mean, anything interesting that you have for us, for the Austrian audience is gladly welcomed. So Peter, the floor is yours. <laughs> Thank you, Valina. It was one of my favorite Austrian voices. I couldn't resist um, taking part in this um, chat. So thanks so much for inviting me. It's great to be with you all today. Um, for uh, Austrian observers or those even casually interested in American politics, I think the best resource um, to be up to speed on the state of the race tends to be this aggregator website called Real Clear Politics, which has um, polling averages, it brings all the polls together and gives you a sense of the state of play and where the race stands, not only nationally, but at the battleground states for president, as well as the Senate and the House. And so from the, I think, uh, most serious, closest observers of politics, all the way to foreign policy analysts like myself, who are, of course, interested in American politics, that's a great resource, realclearpolitics.com. Uh, and I, I don't get anything for that. So that was just a free advertisement for the site. But if you go on the site, um, clearly Joe Biden right now is leading in the polls, which is not to say that uh, the election has been run. Uh, although there has been remarkable volatility in American politics for quite some time, including during this election cycle, the polls have been relatively stable. They've shown a Joe Biden lead, which goes beyond, I think, the 2016 margin of error, which everyone references in the key battleground states in 2016. Um, Hillary Clinton underperformed the real clear politics average by about 2.2% uh, in the national polls. She out underperformed by about 1.1%. Uh, Those averages are, are, are generally correct. And so um, right now, Joe Biden has a lead ranging from six, seven, eight, nine uh, points on that site. And so Donald Trump certainly has to close that gap to make it competitive on election day. It doesn't mean that uh, he needs to uh, close it all together. If he is losing by, say, three points, it could be that there is a silent uh, Trump vote effect, which is much discussed in Washington. People who uh, don't wish to, um, because of the social bias effect on a phone call, uh, tell a pollster that they're supporting uh, Donald Trump because uh, this is a long study theory in political science. They don't want to be, uh, they don't want to, they, they, they want to say something which they presume the pollster would want to hear. 
Um, and then there are questions about, say, the levels of spam phone calling that's taking place um, right now where people just don't want to pick up the phone. There is one outlier called the Trafalgar Group, which actually has Trump winning right now. Trafalgar Group got 2016 more or less right. And they have a different methodology and different assumptions that go into their polling models. So uh, to sum it all up, I would say that Joe Biden is likely winning right now. He looks like the odds on favorite, but there's still time left, including this evening, the final presidential debate, which is one of the last opportunities Donald Trump has to really turn the race around. Mm -hmm. Okay, that was quite a good uh, sum up on your side. On this side of the Atlantic, there is no secret that uh, the political elites, the stakeholders, business, they are all in favor of Joe Biden. Uh, the last, uh, I mean, the expectations, of course, are that uh, Joe Biden will, would win the election, so that actually the relations between Europe and America get better. So now I would like to ask you about your personal view on, um, on the impact of the election outcome on the transatlantic community. Do you think that, um, you know, in case of, and I ask you to, to, to touch upon both uh, possible scenarios. I mean, on the one side, given that Joe Biden wins, what are your concrete expectations? for the transatlantic community, but then again, given that Trump actually wins, what would that mean um, for the transatlantic community under second mandate? You're right. Um, let's start with Biden. I do think there would be a sigh of relief in places like Brussels and Berlin. I'm less sure that would be the case in, say, Budapest and Warsaw. But certainly, um, if we take Europe as a whole, on average, and they're recently pulling to this effect, there probably would be a preference for Joe Biden if that polling uh, is to be, to be believed. Uh, I think uh, Joe Biden uh, does not really have a foreign policy worldview, which is a bit of a paradox given how long he's been uh, in, in the world of foreign policy as vice president, as senator on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. But um, we can, I think, pick out a few concrete initiatives that might take place should Biden win. For one, his close aide, uh, Julie Smith, has recommended a trip in the first 100 days to Europe, to Germany in particular, to try and repair that relationship or unfreeze that relationship. You would also have in the um, first year possibly a summit of democracies. This is one of the big ideas that virtually all of Biden's foreign policy um, advisors talk about and have embraced, in part because they think over the last four years there's been an erosion of democracy, liberal democracy worldwide. They see that as under threat, which is not an analysis that Barack Obama had. Obama took uh, office in the wake and really in the middle of uh, the Iraq war. And so democracy promotion in the Democratic Party ranks had a very negative ring to it because it was seen in the context of the Iraq war. So um, I think there would be probably two or three features to this Biden-esque worldview. One is um, reinforcing democracy and strengthening liberal democracies around the world. The second change, of course, is uh, peer competition. This is something that I think looking back will be one of Donald Trump's great accomplishments, that he will have created a bipartisan consensus in America on the importance of taking on China as a peer competitor, as a revisionist actor that's challenging the liberal order. And then the third um, feature, and this is, I think, a just a, an ingrained part of the Democratic Party DNA, is this, what my colleague Mike Duran has recently called a melioristic foreign policy approach, which is issue-specific, discrete issue tackling in foreign affairs. So even though the Democrats um, uh, do not wish a broad reset with Russia, like Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, um, who at the time uh, mocked the Republicans for seeing Vladimir Putin as sort of a cold warrior, they do want cooperation on discrete issues like the Arctic, like arms control, like um, um, 
um, you know, like like pandemic um, uh, battling. And so, in the context of of of, um, of Europe, I, I think you would see an embrace of the European democracies, the attempt to build a democratic coalition, including some of the democracies of Asia, to tackle then, especially the challenge of China. Jake Sullivan, one of um, Vice President Biden's closest aides recently was at my institute, the Hudson Institute, in a conversation. And he, when asked, what is the number one thing by which you would measure Europe, reference China. And so you could see, I think, a joint attempt by the Biden administration to both hug Europe, but at the same time, while hugging the Europeans, to whisper into their ears, this is, a, this, this is where we need painful, not concessions, but painful steps that will make cause economic pain to Europe in a joint coalition vis-a-vis -vis, vis -vis China. So I think that's a, that's a clear transatlantic, um, transatlantic um, uh, mandate. Biden is a bit of a Europeanist, and so we might see a pivot back to Europe in some respects too, even as the Asia Pacific grows um, in importance. If Donald Trump were to win, uh, and there are many other parts we can unpack, but just as a general overview on, on Biden. As for, um, as for Donald Trump, you know, even though people criticize him for being erratic, we sort of have a feel for what Donald Trump is and what he stands for. And so in the next four years, I would imagine a continuation of some of his foreign policy initiatives towards Europe. For one, he would demand more burden sharing. Uh, for every American president, I think analyzing Europe is made easier than perhaps other continents because you have the natural entry points of NATO. Um, so that would apply to Biden and Trump. Uh, Trump would demand more burden sharing and at the same time uh, possibly play with some of the ambiguities he has, he has raised in his first term on collective security defense in order to prod the Europeans to do more. He also would demand on trade, I think, more of an equilibrium when it comes to you know, surpluses and balances. Um, in the trading relationship. Those are areas in which Europe has been able to more or less avoid Trump. I mean, they really haven't come his way on any any of these issues. And so um, I don't know if after holding their breath for four years, it's possible to hold your breath for eight years in Berlin um, without, um, without having oxygen problems. And so at some point, I think we'd have to have a negotiation or a conversation about what does the transatlantic foreign policy agenda look like? Um, both um, uh, Biden and Trump, um, I think, would be committed to defending the frontiers of Europe, that being kind of um, Eastern Europe, European defense. We have these defense rotations in the Baltic states. Um, uh, some slight disagreements maybe over the nature and scope of assistance to Ukraine. But on the hard kinetic front, you know, that which America has always done, which is provide for the military defense of Europe, I don't see really um, a significant change. If we consider Turkey a European power, uh, there there may be a change there in that um, uh, the, the Biden administration, if it processes the world through the lens of Democrats and non-Democrats or Democrats and sliding towards autocracy states, they have a very hostile view of Erdogan, of, of the Turks, um, and uh, that would have possible implications. Whereas Trump um, may not love the Turks, may not love, say, the Saudis, but um, if there's a consensus that the U.S. isn't going to be as involved in some of the nettlesome problems in the Middle East, then you have to develop partnerships with your traditional allies, and that includes that includes Turkey. So um, um, uh, I think those are those are all areas where um, um, where we where we would see some continuity where we where we are today. Right now, the relationship's frozen because we're in election season, and everyone is just waiting for. Um, November 3rd, but I would say that those are the big um, those are the big fault lines. And uh, maybe just to return to my opening. One of the first big initiatives you would see in, in a Biden administration would just be re-signing Paris, re-signing the World Health Organization, steps to kind of entice the Europeans, and and then and then would come the asks afterwards, I think. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I would like to unpack it a little bit more before we move to the next uh, issue and I have, trust me, a lot of issues that I would like to cover with you today. <laughs> um, namely, one major issue in which both presidents would differ uh, is uh, the idea of multilateralism, the way how the, the, this concept, Western concept, has been developed over the last 75 years, right? Now, you've mentioned already that under Joe Biden uh, presidency, uh, definitely there will be a different type of engagement, more like Obama uh, presidency, uh, likely. Now, I would like to ask you uh, what your expectations are in terms of uh, multilateral uh, frameworks. Like one of them is certainly the transatlantic community, but there is more to it, and we are observing increasingly interest by the United States in. Uh, in Indo-Pacific region and Asian partners and allies, do you think that uh, some of the uh, some of the you know initiatives by Obama, multilateral initiatives by Obama, will be revived under Joe Biden, or uh, will be this multilateral approach, such as uh, the one initiated by Obama, uh, back on the menu? What I mean is, for instance, this Trans-Pacific Partnership. This TPP, uh, so TPP is one uh, concrete example when it comes to the Asian partners, and we had a similar project for trade block uh, with uh, the European Union, so that means the United States European Union. Do you think that this kind of major regional integration projects will be back? Or do you think that this is going to be, once again, more adjusted to the realities uh, in 2021, namely more like bilateral tracks with certain partners, certain allies? How exactly do you think this is going to to, to so this issue has not really been well. Perhaps it's been settled, but if it's been settled, it hasn't been communicated even within the even within the Biden campaign, based on what I've heard. Um, referring specifically to the TPP, Biden has rolled out um, an agenda. He's also written a piece in Foreign Affairs, which makes clear, and perhaps this is just signaling for the campaign, that he intends to make major American investments domestically. Um, and this is a play for working class voters that Trump has taken from the Democratic Party before he considers any sort of grand trade negotiations abroad. Um, interestingly enough, in 2016, the last four candidates for president, the last, the, the finalists really, Ted Cruz and Trump on the Republican side, Clinton and Sanders on the Democratic side, all uh, opposed TPP. Now, there was a conjecture that if Hillary Clinton had won the race, and the Democrats had taken the Senate or controlled it, that Chuck Schumer would have passed TPP and she would have essentially signed it in against uh, what she had said in the campaign. But I think that speaks to, um, yeah, I think, some of the domestic political roadblocks to an agreement like um, TPP. There are, I think, groups within the broader Biden or Democratic Party world, and especially, um, I think, some shall we call them sort of neoliberals who are disappointed by Trump and have um, embraced Biden, that hope there will be sort of a soft globalism um, in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the Biden administration. And so they hope that something like TPP um, could be resurrected. And I should say, I mean, it's, it's, it's been reconfigured and put in force by the Japanese that the Americans would essentially join it. Um, these are sort of restorationists of kind of Obama era um, uh, Democrats. Um, but then, you know, there are others who think the world has just fundamentally changed and that um, and and all of the energy in the Democratic Party is elsewhere. It's with people like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez 
and um, I'd say Democratic populist Elizabeth Warren, who who, who wouldn't necessarily embrace uh, something like TPP. Um, in general, there's a difference between the Republicans and Democrats on multilateralism, I would say. The Democrats definitely embrace what Heiko Maas calls the Allianz der Multilateralisten. That means multilateralism almost for the sake of multilateralism, um, whereas uh, the Republicans are much more apt to view it through the lens of what are the actual ends being achieved? Multilateralism is a means towards achieving positive policy outcomes. So uh, to return to the China issue in this trade dispute that uh, President Trump has with Chairman Xi between the United States and China, um, the Europeans um, uh, have said, and heads of state have come to Washington and made this argument to Trump in the Oval Office, we wanna join the American trade negotiation with China. And you hear this all the time uh, in delegations that come to Washington, well, before the coronavirus, that. They wanted to uh, join the American negotiating track. Why won't the Americans let them in? Well, if you put that question to the Trump administration, their counter argument will be, look, we've sort of tried that in the past. The issue is that it takes the Europeans, uh, the Europeans will lure you into a negotiation between Washington and Europe. It takes them months, if not years, um, to arrive at a joint negotiating framework. All the while, your objectives are being diluted. And in the end, a region like Flanders comes in and says, well, even this isn't acceptable. And so, yes, you have a joint transatlantic negotiating framework, a multilateral concept, as it were. But your objectives have been so diluted that you're not really able to negotiate with the Chinese very well. This way, you might have a smaller market, less leverage, but at least you have a coherent executive and a one kind of negotiating posture, which is Lighthizer deputized by Trump to sit across from uh, the Chinese. So that's their argument, at least. Um, uh, the Biden team would counter that uh, we need, a, as I said at the outset, a sort of democratic alliance together with the Asian countries to take on uh, the Chinese, because otherwise we don't have enough markets. We can't actually force the structural reforms. And that's sort of a debate that's, that's played out in Washington. Mm -hmm. You mentioned several times uh, the buzzword China. And if there's one major issue in which both uh, parties probably not differ too much is actually the realization that the relationship with China is never going to be the same, right, after the U.S. election. Now, of course, the approach by both uh, candidates will certainly differ, will so certainly be with uh, various nuances, but I would like to touch upon the topic of China. First and foremost, what do you think is going to be the uh, concrete impact of the US presidential election on the relations between the United States and China? And then again, what will be the repercussion for Europe? Because right now, what Europe is trying to do uh, is more or less to navigate between both uh, systemic players, but uh, well, while actually avoiding taking sides? Um, well, let me say, let me say um, um, one interesting analysis I've heard recently, um, and uh, uh, let's take on board the Democratic Party critique of Trump that he's this bungling president who, who uh, has lost kind of America's alliance framework and pushed away our closest partners. But if you take that analysis on board, Interestingly enough, uh, I think looking back in turning to 30 years, one of the biggest strategic mistakes of our time has been the Chinese decision, and I should say it's Chairman Xi's decision in the end, to uh, drop hide and bide. Uh, this Chinese kind of strategy of, of 
pretending as he did at Davos in 2017 to be uh, playing by the rules of the liberal international order, at least in its rhetoric and its actions, stealing intellectual property and all the rest, but doing enough to keep um, keep doors to Europe open, doing enough to deluding Americans who are desperate for positive kind of convergence, harmonic convergence with uh, China on board on outreach. I mean, the Americans have done so much from entry into the World Trade Organization onwards to run interference for the Chinese almost and to help support and um, their rise. Uh, in a way, um, uh, uh, maybe the Chinese had the same read as the Democratic Party, and so they thought now is our moment. Um, but they might have come out of hiding about ten years, uh, uh, ten years too early before they'd really uh, achieved the dominant position in a number of areas. Um, so yes, I think the scale has fallen from the eyes of the Europeans. It's fallen from the skies, uh, from from the eyes of of the Democratic Party um, uh, leadership. Where I do think there might be a difference is. Um, and we've actually emailed about this. Or, um, is uh, to what extent would um, would if, if if your calculation is as a Democrat that um, climate change is an existential issue, right? If you take on board the Greta Thunberg analysis and, and AOC in Washington seems to share that this promising Congresswoman I've referenced not two or three times, um, and a lot of Democrats do. I mean, this is really becoming kind of a hot button issue. And you go to the Chinese, and the Chinese say to you. All right, we're prepared to cooperate with you on key climate change issues, but it means no great power competition in, say, the South China Sea or the East China Seas. If the world is at stake in your in your analysis of climate change, are you really prepared not to take that deal? Um, so I think there might be some chinks in the armor of the Democratic um, position because on things like, again, discrete issue um, uh, co coordination, like fighting a global pandemic. I mean, these are these are things where the Democrats would want to work with the Chinese um, far more so than the Republicans. So there could be some change and some differences and some nuance there um, that are significant and, and meaningful. Uh, the implications for Europe, I think, are several fold. For one, um, even if Joe Biden is a um, is a Europeanist in some ways, clearly the weight of American military posture, the weight of military, American attention is going to be in the Pacific. I don't think there's any way of getting around that. And so um, that suggests that Europe is going to have to be more responsible for its own neighborhood and for its own specific deterrence, continental um, deterrence. So it's easy to envision a slow but steady, and this might go beyond, would go beyond the next four years, process where the U.S. maintains a small tripwire force uh, in Europe and in, in, in turn, um, a French um, or British warship accompanies some American um, freedom of uh, seas navigation operations in, in in the Asia Pacific. And so there's still this kind of cohesiveness, but in the end, um, they're both responsible. Um, uh, they're both more or less responsible for their own own theaters. I, I think that's putting it way too clear cut, but, but in general, I think that's where the weight would go. Um, in the short run, you know, there are tensions now. I mean, what if the Chinese decide to invade Taiwan um, um, and at the same time, the Russians moved into the Baltics. I mean, is America really able to fight a two-theater war right now? Is America prepared to defend Taiwan? These are sort of open questions. Um, the American military has shrunk significantly since the height of the Cold War, and just as importantly for the point I raised about the Baltics, the European militaries have, have deteriorated. So uh, if the Chinese moved across the Taiwan Straits, the Russians moved into the Baltics with a quick, strong, aggressive operation, would... Germany really prepared to fight its way in. You know, I think those are all those are all open questions. Um, very high risks, obviously, associated with that for the Kremlin and for for Beijing. But nonetheless, I mean, we're in a world now 
um, where questions like that were unfathomable, say 10, 15 years ago, because America was just so dominant. Um, but now there are peer competitors who are feeling their oats and think that they're that there that there are um, uh, options there. So um, uh, maybe to bring it full circle for what it means for Europe, um, uh, one point would be that it's unclear to what extent Russia and China uh, work together. I think there's a general alignment, which is to say that I don't think Russia does anything that would damage Chinese interests, and the Chinese don't do anything to damage Russian interests. But there might not be a planning cell in each military where they're sort of coordinating moves. But I think that's something to keep in mind. I mean, it's really one theater. Secondly, um, the Eurasian continent is linked. So that's part of the reason why I say this conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia matters so much. It's this very narrow land corridor that connects trade from Asia uh, to Europe, uh, gas flow. I mean, there are a whole host of issues um, that make this kind of one broad theater rather than just Asia uh, and Europe. In an oceanic sense, they're separate, but in, in terms of land, of course, they're not. And then lastly, um, this is in the end kind of a geotechnical competition. I mean, the future of the 21st century is going to be one based on uh, innovation, technology, artificial intelligence, and all of these issues are on the economic front, of course, are very important uh, in terms of the transatlantic relationship because Europe's an economic superpower. Mm -hmm. And you made an excellent point uh, while talking about China uh, and Russia, which I caught uh, the track there, by the way, um, many years ago, when this was not a topic uh, in any think tank discussions, uh, but is now becoming an issue. Uh, why? Because of what you pointed out, namely the possibility for systemic coordination, creating troubles and uh, disruption simultaneously, which would mean that the transatlantic community, which is also not coherent right now, should and would have to face uh, both actors on various fronts. And um, one of the major um, issues that I think is going to become even a bigger problem in the next years is exactly this kind of never uh, not always together, but never against each other, uh, kind of mode between China and Russia in uh, key areas and sectors, which you also pointed out. Now, I would like to ask you, um, do you think that, uh, well, obviously there will not be a reset button this time under a democratic uh, president, um, but uh, do you think that something will change in the relations between United States and uh, Russia, depending on who is going to win the election? Um, and isn't it that there is already the realization that uh, these relations are actually a function of the relations between United States and China? So basically, more or less, um, there is already the realization that, okay, uh, for each of the blocks, for each of these two major geopolitical blocks, having Russia in the rivals block is actually uh, disadvantages. So basically, it's not so much about advantages, uh, but it's more about preventing Russia from becoming part of the rivals block. What is your take on that? Do you think that there is going to be a change in the approach by the United States? Um, depending on who, who, whose candidate will win um, in the relations with Russia. On that side of the Atlantic, there is already, by the way, a kind of a shift in the geopolitical 
um, understanding coming from France and Germany. And there is a sort of rapprochement being initiated by the French President Macron towards Russia, which of course resulted in uh, serious repercussions and strong reactions, as you might understand and uh, imagine, in certain uh, Eastern European countries. And you named some of them, like the Baltics, for instance, or Poland. Um, well, let me let me go through both of them. I mean, I think with President Trump, um, the the position of Russia has been relatively hawkish from um, from again these troop rotations that ensure basic deterrence in Eastern Europe, all the way to American regulatory decisions through fracking, for example, to kind of liberate American shale, oil, and gas. That's a direct threat to the Russian petrol economy. I mean, it's basically it's not quite a single economy, uh, commodity economy, but beyond weapon systems, vodka, and caviar, it's basically oil and gas that the Russians um, live from. So Trump has, I think, pursued, um, and again, this week, they're uh, individual sanctions announced and a whole series of sanctions have been put in place since the start of his administrations. Uh, lethal weapons to Ukraine, a pretty hawkish position on Russia in the European theater. Um, beyond that, he's also demonstrated a willingness to use force against um, Russian allies. Uh, the Russian influence in the Middle East flows through, um, through the Assad regime and, uh, and, uh, and uh, Trump has taken a pretty hard view against uh, Assad on the ground, uh, Assad and uh, Assad's Iranian overlords, who constitute the ground troops for kind of Russia's air force um, in 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 the eastern Levant. So, as Russia established itself under the Obama administration, reestablished itself in the Middle East, I think Trump has had to take those realities on board, but has you know pursued a pretty hawkish um, uh, policy. And when he um, uh, ordered airstrikes against um, uh, Syrian installations following a chemical weapons attack, it was um, it was uh, the, the Democrats who said, oh, he's going to start World War III because the Russians are there. So, um, you know, I hear a lot of talk from the Democratic Party that they're that they're disillusioned by Russia. They take the election interference in 2016 very personally. Many of them are convinced that that actually costs them the race. Um, but when it then comes to kind of hard kinetic um, uh, military muscle, which in the end is the language that the Russians speak and understand, I'm not so sure that they're really prepared um, you know, to take the next step. I mean, just look at Biden's position on, uh, I, I can't say that the, the American position right now, the Pompeo's position is all that much better. But if you look at Biden on the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, this is a, a, a conflict that the Iranians and the Russians who support Armenia desperately want to maintain frozen because the Iranians do not want a larger border with the Azeris. They have a minority in the millions of Azeris um, that poses a major threat to um, Tabruk in the north. Um, there, there's a lot of discomfort there. And the Biden position, as I could uh, read it, is basically mediate a ceasefire that would uh, that would basically um, uh, that would basically rescue the Armenians and support the Russian position. Whereas, um, you know, the, the Turks, a NATO ally and the Israelis are supporting um, and reinforcing Azerbaijan. So I think there are just examples there around the world where um, um, uh, the the inclination for peacemaking um, uh, doesn't always necessarily align with um, American interests. And I worry about that with a, a, a Biden team. But um, more broadly, I do think that there's a basic commitment the way that the Trump administration has shown to defending um, the frontiers of Europe, the borders of Europe. Biden would would um, um, 
um, would would certainly continue that. If there's a worry in the Trump uh, team, to me, it's that there is a there is in some factions of MAGA world, if we call it that, make America great world. Um, there is a um, there is um, a certain um, I think romanticism of the Russians along the lines of Macron that you have to pull the Russians away from the Chinese, and so strategic dialogue wouldn't be such a bad thing. Um, I don't think that's really um, a wise move. I don't think that's really um, very well considered, but um, that's there. And um, and I doubt the Biden uh, administration, because as you said, they don't want to hit reset, would pursue such a strategy. Mm -hmm. um, you have a special focus on the Middle East, so I would like to um, touch upon uh, the region particularly, as I expect that uh, the region will, uh, you know, will remain important, not just for the United States, uh, but uh, equally for Europe and for for the future geopolitical and geoeconomic developments that are taking place. Now, one thing, there are several issues that I would like to, uh, to discuss with you. Now, we have the situation, of course, with the maximum pressure policy by Trump on Iran. So one thing that I would like you to cover is your assessment uh, about the implication of the U.S. election uh, outcome on the future relations with Iran, depending on who is going to win. Uh, second uh, major issue is, of course, Turkey, where we are observing on that side of the Atlantic an increasingly ambiguous relationship between Europe and Turkey. But then again, Turkey is one of the most important NATO members and is still probably one of the most important geopolitical partners of the United States in this region for various reasons. Um, so I would like you to also uh, cover uh, the issue with Turkey, whether the relations with Turkey will change depending on, on the outcome. And then there is a third important issue, which I would like to unpack, namely the issue with the relations uh, between Israel, United Arab Emirates, uh, I mean the peace deal, of course, the normalization of relations with uh, certain Arab uh, countries and what is going to um, happen after the US election, whether this kind of positive development for the region will continue or will there be another shift depending on the, on, 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 on the um, presidential outcome? Um. On, uh, let me just take those in order then. On Iran, <clears throat> I would say that um, maximum pressure has been rather effective. At least um, I think there's been, I don't know if there's consensus on that, but there certainly is amongst um, Republicans and some Democrats. I think Democrats are surprised how, um, how cutting unilateral American sanctions could be. Because one of the points of analysis that went into pursuing the JCPOA was that the dollar alone, unilateral American sanctions wouldn't be enough um, to coerce the Iranians. And instead, what we've seen in basically an economic sanctions um, uh, pushback, leaning on the um, Israelis, leaning somewhat on the Turks, has been that Iran has lost its position um, in Beirut, in Sana'a, in Baghdad, in Damascus. Um, not entirely, I mean, it's still um, a dominant player in a lot of different um, arenas in, in, in those countries. But um, it was really on the offense when... Um, Donald Trump took office. I don't think that's the case today. Instead, it's experiencing mass domestic unrest. The real is cratering. Um, Iran is um, somewhat on the ropes, one could argue. Uh, 
if Joe Biden, um, so if Donald Trump wins, he will continue the pressure campaign as a way to lead into negotiations for a deal which he views as acceptable, which means no enrichment, the gold standard, um, um, and um, and kind of a traditional American approach to 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 um, to, to proliferation. Quite frankly, if um, if Joe Biden wins, he plans on re-entering the JCPOA. I mean, it'll be JCPOA 2.0. Um, there is talk that they want to use the leverage of sanctions for a more robust deal. But what does that actually look like? I mean, the devil's in the details. If, again, the calculation is that we are uh, going to make a push for an alliance of democracies, um, and then at the same time, people like Martin Indyk, prominent foreign policy observer, say the Middle East matters much less than it ever has um, for the United States because of our own oil and gas findings, among other issues, then... Um, uh, then all that's left is a, uh, an entente of sorts with the Iranians, or at least an attempt to seek a regional equilibrium. So um, uh, there may be a use of, of, of the sanctions leverage to try to push the Iranians for additional components like the conventional weapons embargo that just went away um, uh, and an improvement of the, um, of the JCPOA. But in the end, I mean, that's kind of the direction I think we would head. On Turkey, um, uh, you're right. I mean, Turkey is um, Turkey is a major geopolitical uh, player within NATO. It has the second biggest army. Uh, it actually is a country with real military force and can actually project power. Um, the second wealthiest country within NATO is basically a Turkish power, Germany, given the large number of Gastabeta that made their way to Germany. So that's a real um, you know, domestic constituency. And if you think about Emmanuel Macron's um, um, uh, uh, recent uh, recent shots at the Turks. I think that's in part a way of um, of critiquing NATO as a way to build a European alternative to NATO. And because he can't take the Americans on directly, he takes on NATO or Turkey as almost a proxy. But it also speaks to you know the Armenian population in France. Germany playing a mediating role speaks to the Turkish uh, voting base in Germany. I mean, there's a lot there's a lot of European kind of um, Turkishness too that's played up with this. It's not just an American calculation. So. Um, uh, you know, it's hard. It's hard to imagine a successful Syria policy, given the the border and where where Turkey sits. It's hard to think of any um, sort of reasonable Black Sea security environment without um, without some sort of uh, you know positive relationship with the Turks. And so, uh, Turkey is um, a problematic actor. But you know, we're not entirely innocent in why this relationship has deteriorated. We've basically cooperated with the PKK to take on. ISIS and Syria, and for the for for Ankara, that's really a deadly sin. So uh, the Turks are pro pro provoking. Uh, there's no doubt Erdogan is is hostile, but Erdogan won't be around forever. And um, and a lot of this, I think, um, is really his. For example, on the exploration um, in the Eastern Mediterranean, assigned to the Europeans, to the Israelis, to the Greeks. Um, uh, you won't just cut me out um, by cutting a deal. Um, um, you know, Turkey Turkey wants to be part of the future of Eastern Mediterranean energy, and so. Um, um, it's really kind of a signal of sorts. So I, I, my view is that we need Turkey, and I think that we should do our best to take on board some Turkish concerns and actually get into a negotiation with them about some of these core issues, um, um, which isn't always easy, but um, um, but um, but something we should pursue. As for the peace deal, um, um, I, I if if Joe Biden um, wins, he's, the embassy will stay in Jerusalem. Um, the uh, Arab states and the Israelis worried perhaps about a JCPOA 2.0 will hug each other even tighter. 
um, as an alternative to Iran. If uh, Donald Trump wins, who has embraced Israel, I think shown um, the Gulf Arabs the value of Israel. Um, it's not only a, a kind of a military actor par excellence in the Middle East, but also in the areas that matter for uh, the economy of, uh, of the future technology is a superpower. So there's a lot of opportunity there. And I think, um, you know, a difference between, say, the peace accords with Jordan in 94 or the Camp David Accords with the Egyptians is that there really is a kind of popular normalization. You know, it's Emiratis themselves and not just the political leadership dragging um, their populations along with them that are for this. And so I think there's real opportunities in civic society and economic exchange and investment and all the rest to, um, to really um, burnish that um, burnish that um, that relationship. Mm -hmm. um, let's stay on that issue for a little bit longer. Um, how about the question of future American military presence uh, in this region? Since I know that it's your special focus, I'm just trying to uh, unpack a little bit more. Do you think that uh, the approach uh, will change? How uh, we, we, we've been witnessing that there is a readiness on the side of the U.S. president to withdraw, at least partially, from some of these uh, countries in the Middle East. Do you think that this trend is going to continue, or do you think that there will be a sort of uh, regional alliances where uh, American troops will be deployed uh, or will stay or remain deployed, let's put it that way, only in, uh, you know, in countries that are close allies or how you know this is going to be a certainly an issue for the future for the next u.s president and due to the lack of european engagement which is not going to change no matter who is going to be the next german chancellor or whether the french president is going to be re-elected or not and since the, um, the 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 british will be also preoccupied with their own uh, issues uh, following the Brexit, the expectation is that uh, someone is going to take care, so to say, more or less of the security architecture. So the question is, what will be the approach towards military presence? And uh, specifically, will there be a further withdrawal of US troops under, let's say, second mandate by Trump? Or will there be um, actually, uh, you know, keeping or increasing the use uh, presence of the Democratic president? What president? What's your expectation on that matter? So I think that if Biden wins, he will go for that regional equilibrium. Uh, in general, I think all factions of the Biden team um, view the Middle East as less relevant than in the past, which I think is sort of a mistake because. While we dream of a green future, we still have to get there and oil and gas will matter um, uh, in the short and medium run. The Chinese clearly recognize this, making huge investments in Iraq and elsewhere. Um, but the point is they'll, they'll, they'll look for an equilibrium, which is to say they want Iran um, and Saudi and other actors to sort of share the region, as President Obama put it famously in an interview with The Atlantic in 2015 um, um, or 16. So, um, they hope that kind of the military challenges will not disappear, but that together we can tackle meddlesome issues like um, like Sunni extremism, for example. Um, um, so in that sense, you know, the U.S. would keep a troop 
presence, but um, hopefully there will be diplomatic arrangements and local attempts to go after these sorts of actors. The Trump approach would be um, a little bit different. I mean, it looks at Israel and it says Israel is almost like an unsinkable American aircraft carrier in the Eastern Mediterranean. There are no U.S. troops anywhere near Israel because you don't need American troops. I mean, the Israelis can handle their security and they do a good job of of pushing, say, Hezbollah off the Golan Heights or the IRGC, I should say, off the Golan Heights. Um, and so, um, and so uh, what the U.S. really ideally wants to do is basically provide security sector reform, security assistance, training, and so forth, which is not quite the mission in Iraq, but, um, but you know, you can see in Iraq what the U.S. wants for the region, which is some counterterrorism operations if necessary, but generally put the host government in the lead so it can control its own um, its own its own security sector, and then um, and then you provide kind of training, aid, and all the rest um, to improve them. Now, of course, Iraq is a special case because it's it's it had deteriorated so much, and um, uh, and you know other places like Saudi Arabia are not comparable. But you get the general you get the general view or the general vision. So um, you know, g- given the levels of of American troops in the region today, I mean, our Iraq troop presence has been drawn down significantly. Afghanistan as as well, which of course Central Asia is not the same region. But the point being, you know, those are sustainable numbers, um, especially if they are not uh, high levels of casualties. Mm-hmm. Now, I've received two questions. I see two questions uh, coming from uh, the audience. Uh, one is related to India. What is your uh, view of the future relations between the United States and India, depending on the outcome? Do you think that uh, this is going to be an issue? Uh, I mean, if we recall um, the relations uh, between India and Washington weren't the best during the the Obama administration, uh, but there were efforts already, in, you know, towards deepening the relationship with Delhi, and uh, now there is obviously also an Indo-Pacific focus uh, during this administration. So, what is your take on that? There is a second question re- regarding the global order. What do you think? Uh, how do you think uh, will the global order look like, depending on the next? U.S. president. So I, I don't really know much about India, but I'll say that um, the general feel is that this is really one of the hot areas of not only scholarship, but public policy discussion in D.C. Um, for a couple of reasons. One is that um, in the context of China, you know, the administration has rolled out this this quad, um, which is supposed to be this four way grouping um, Japan, Australia, the United States, and India to um, to to basically keep a free and open Indo-Pacific. Uh, I think that will remain sort of the four-way pillar of American engagement in that region. It's clearly made the Indo-Pacific one unit rather than just the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. Um, India obviously has this tradition of non-alignment. That is something that is almost impossible to overcome, but as we've seen in the Indian Chinese altercations in um, Ladakh and in the, in the in kind of the Himalayan region, uh, where India is now pumping in mass resources to build up its infrastructure on its side of the line of dispute, the Indians are very aware, having fought a war in the 60s with uh, China, um, that um, China poses a major problem to it, and so it will push India naturally towards the United States and this coalition, even if formal alliance is a bridge too far. 
Um, at least that's been um, um, that's been the sense I've gotten talking to um, kind of uh, Indian Indian intellectuals and public officials. The Modi-Trump relationship is rather good. Um, uh, the prime minister was in the United States. He went to Houston for a rally, which filled a football stadium of 80,000 people, Indian Americans. Um, that's a serious diaspora. Now we should say Americans with Indian origin in the United States. And so um, uh, there's a natural kind of, I think, there's a natural, um, there's a natural kind of compatibility there and, and opportunity. But um, India, as India goes, I think, I shouldn't say Eurasia goes, but that will have a major impact on the balance of power. Um, the entire Belt and Road Initiative runs north of uh, India through the Chi through the Pakistani uh, corridor out into uh, the Indian Ocean, and so uh, India almost stands sentry over um, over over that um, over that corridor, and as a result, poses some of a threat for China's attempt to break out over land. Um, should it be kind of hemmed in on the first island chain or the second island chain in the Pacific. So um, so India, obviously, um, also as a market, an alternative to China, large population, um, even if uh, it hasn't quite developed quite the bureaucratic and efficiencies that um, that China has to be able to kind of power through um, in, 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 in its economy, but still hugely important. As for the global or, or so I should say I'm a novice on India. So that was those are just my impressions. Um, of, of of India, as for um, global order, I think we're I think we're overwhelmingly likely to have a bipolar order. Uh, I don't really see a third pole on the horizon. Uh, I don't think India can manage to make itself into a third pole. Pole Europe has, I think, some regulatory powers that make it a a, a, a significant um, great power but um, it's entirely imbalanced. And so um, those vulnerabilities and weaknesses, I think prohibit it from um, becoming a third pole. It doesn't have a military a component. Um, its biggest power, Germany doesn't have kind of a strategic culture in which it's prepared to use military force to say stabilize Syria. So those weaknesses, I think, create dependencies that make it difficult, not to mention uh, the differences between say Portugal and Lithuania are larger than between Alabama and California. I mean, it doesn't have that cohesion that's necessary. So um, I think it's likely to be a Sino-American um, uh, bipolar world with major third power actors like um, Russia on some fronts is a global power on nuclear issues um, and other areas it's regional. Iran, a regional actor um, that, that will play a role, Pakistan, India. Um, Venezuela, Colombia, uh, Nigeria, I mean, South Africa, these are all, you know, these are all relevant players, but can any of them punch up, I think, into the Sino-American competition? I sort of doubt it. Mm -hmm. I cannot but share your view uh, on the global order, which has been actually my call since 2014, where I actually uh, made exactly the claim that I don't see a third power in systemic terms. Of course, they are, like you've pointed out, uh, valid arguments towards one or other regional actor being with limited power projection. However, the only two systems powers or systems, system, systemic centers of power that I see, uh, I saw since the last six, seven years were uh, China and United States. And however, what I find very interesting is that, uh, like I said, all these middle powers that are right now feeling kind of a squeeze between, you know, being loyal on the one side towards the United States, 
um, specifically the partners and allies, but on the other side, of course, having business relations with China. So uh, there is the dilemma how to navigate without uh, having to take sides. And I think that at some point, there's going to be a strategic necessity to take certain decisions and to position yourself, uh, which I call the partition time, where at some point, the, all these middle powers will be faced with the either or choice, whether they like it or not. But we are not there yet. We are still in, uh, you know, in terms of uh, having to wait for one of the most important outcomes in this year. And um, there are two more questions that I would like to, to ask you uh, before our time is, uh, is uh, running out. One is related to the, uh, once again, to Europe. And that is that, um, if we recall correctly, uh, Trump, one of Trump's main, main calls were about connectivity, right? As opposed to the China's Belt and Road, uh, it's about connectivity, connectivity uh, in one way, bringing connectivity back to the United States, but then again also uh, promoting connectivity with partners and allies, of course, loyal ones. And now there is this three city uh, initiative, which actually includes Austria and other uh, 11 European Union members, where the United States is very, very active. If we look at the last Pompeo's visit in Europe, most of these countries were actually covered during his trip, and it's about connectivity, it's about creating infrastructure uh, between the North and the South, and then, of course, in the long run, so also about connectivity towards North Africa and the Middle East once again, of course, once again with partners and allies. So, um, is there any discussion, any debate in Washington, in the think tanks, about the importance of this um, uh, initiative, which I think is really a serious geoeconomic uh, response to, uh, you know, how to curb Chinese influence in Europe. Um, and what is your take on it? Uh, do you think it's a feasible initiative under second uh, mandate of Trump or under, uh, under Joe Biden? Um, that's one question. And second question, of course, is what is your expectation about the recovery? Um, following COVID-19 crisis, I mean, uh, are there any serious discussions um, in Washington right now um, about the long-term implications? Um, and what kind of recovery plans do you think are going to be introduced once there is a clear outcome on the presidential election? Because we've seen a lot of efforts, but the expectation was that uh, these efforts were also due to the presidential election. Now, once the presidential election is over, what is the expectation for the recovery, for the real recovery? Are we going to witness a real recovery soon, specifically in the transatlantic area? Because that will also be decisive for the future of the relations, in my sense. On the three C's, I'm a huge proponent of it. I think it's a great initiative. And um, I think that the you know, the, the Baltic, the Black, and the Arctic Seas are also three kind of key security domains that the U.S. has to be um, has to be very vigilant about and where kind of major American interests are at stake and where there's the most risk to um, uh, or there's the most risk to um, to Western interests. 
uh, at the Munich Security Conference in February, the U.S. made an announcement of, an, of, a, of, of a major investment that's now flowing. And, um, uh, and, uh, and I suspect, I mean, this will certainly be continued in the Trump 2.0 um, administration. And I suspect, although I haven't read or haven't paid attention, if Biden has made a statement on three C's, that it would continue also in a, in a Biden administration. North-South connectivity, I think, is hugely important because East-West is so much more established than it, than is that is north north south. So I, thanks for raising that, and that's probably one of the real bright spots of uh, the Trump administration's approach to Europe on COVID recovery. Um, we've had several major packages um, passed that have actually been complicated by the presidential um, um, campaign, rather than I think um, uh, made easier in part because the schedules. I mean, the Senate and the House are out um, campaigning. And then um, beyond that, um, it's just more difficult to pass major legislative packages. But it reminds me a little bit of 2008 during the financial crisis. There was also a huge uh, bill called TARP passed, which was a rescue package for um, basically for the banks. And and, um, and in the wake of that collapse of the housing market, this time we've also passed trillions of dollars in in rescue packages. And talking to one... um, architect, senior administration official, he sort of described it as building a bridge into the fog. That was kind of his mandate um, in the spring um, because you didn't quite know um, uh, where you were building it to, but you had to get basically small businesses in particular, but really the American economy to the summer months in the hopes, because there was some speculation that in the summer COVID would, would dissipate a little bit because you'd spend more time outdoors and so forth. When then summer came, COVID is still with us. Um, I noticed since October 5th, Europe's now having a higher infection rate than in the United States. It seems to be another wave on the horizon in Europe. We're building uh, or attempting to build a second bridge into the fog, which is now being complicated. There are heated negotiations ongoing with deadlines being thrown around, but being complicated now by um, by the by the election and just by um, by also, I think, differences over the size of the package, who it should go to. Um, these are astronomical sums, $2 trillion, um, um, $1.6 trillion, 2.2. The Republicans don't want to go over $2 trillion and so forth. But the point being, um, there's an immediate recovery for another bridge, uh, package for another bridge sort of into the fog until at some point therapeutics and vaccines and all the rest can stabilize the setting. But what this administration official did say to me, and this has kind of stuck with me or resonated with me, is you know, building one bridge after another is not the same because there are just long-term costs associated with um, with these bridging mechanisms. Meaning, after the first 90 or 120 days run out, um, you know, it doesn't entirely replace clients. It doesn't entirely replace your business. And so, um, they're going to start being waves of of bankruptcies and waves of economic um, economic damage that you just cannot you just cannot um, you cannot um, you cannot fix. I mean, it's a little bit like putting somebody into an artificial coma, put our economy into an artificial coma. And at some point, we'll wake it up when we have the vaccines and, and the therapeutics. But are all the organs going to come back? You know, I doubt it. I mean, you know, some things might just have died off and um, and they and they won't come back. So um, obviously, this is an incredibly com- complex issue. It's really hard to know, um, really hard to know um, to what extent um, um you know, our economies, how it's going to come back. There are all these V-shapes versus kind of Nikes and all the rest are W-shaped. We did have a, a stimulus package, ironically, uh, when Biden was uh, vice president a year or six months into his 
time as vice president after the financial crisis, the so-called famous stimulus with the shovel-ready projects, that was, I think, widely panned as a, as a, a stimulus failure. Let's hope if Biden wins the election that um, this time they're smarter. They really haven't changed any of their spending targets. I mean, they still have a Green New Deal and the hundreds of billions of dollars. They still have a health care plan that's going to cost a lot of money. So despite these trillions being spent on a COVID recovery plan, the same spending goals are still in place in these domestic initiatives. You think that one would affect the other, but they haven't. So um, it, uh, Biden has said he wants to invest in infrastructure. He wants to invest in in America rather than do kind of big trade sweeping trade deals abroad uh, kind of as a first initial step. And I suppose um, um, we'll see where his priorities there on how to spend it and on what. And of course, a big question will be who controls the Congress because Congress has power of the purse strings. And so if um, Mitch McConnell manages to hold their majority for the Republicans in the Senate, um, that will that will impact the shape of a recovery versus Chuck Schumer, the Democrats controlling the Senate and Pelosi will control the House. Mm-hmm. Oh, one final question. I see that uh, our time has run out, but uh, still I will use this opportunity. <laughs> it is a question about the systemic decoupling. Do you think there's going to be a systemic decoupling under Joe Biden? under Joe Biden's mandate. And do you think that there is going to be an ideological component added to the system of the coupling, uh, depending on who is going to win the election? Ideological component uh, is, of course, related to the Communist Party of China, about the model of government that China has been propagating in the last years and now has become increasingly apparent as part of their, so to say, package in their relations with their countries. So do you think that there is going to be an ideological component um, of, the, of this sort of decoupling? And what is your take on the systemic decoupling in a sense of will there be one or not? So if Biden wins, I don't think there'll be systemic decoupling. There will be, um, I think there are probably two broad camps, one that use the world as Obama did, where you can work with the Chinese. The system hasn't fundamentally changed. There's opportunities for cooperation and um, and uh, and uh, it's basically Obama 2.0. The other um, camp thinks post Hong Kong, post um, uh, Xin, all the kind of Xinjiang, I think, burning in people's uh, minds, uh, China's warrior diplomacy, all of the other issues percolating to the surface and what Trump has really done, which has forced the issue that there might have to be some selective decoupling. But, um, you know, the difference between the Cold War and this competition is that um, there was never really an integrated Soviet American economy. There certainly is an American Chinese economy, and there are a lot of equities in play. And think of Apple, think of um, Goldman Sachs, think of these major corporations that have big stakes in in China, just like VW does in Germany. So there, there will be an attempt, I think, to separate out crucial supply chains, crucial national security um, um, components from broader trade and broader um, economic exchange. Um, and, I, and, I, and I certainly think there'll be an ideological component to the co- competition. If, if a summit of democracies is your first big, um, of course, there'll be other things like, I think NATO will probably hold a summit sometime in the spring um, if Joe Biden wins. Um, and then the first half of the year, if Donald Trump wins the election. But the point being, 
there will be there will be other kind of natural rhythms of international life. But sort of an 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 extra additional feature, the summit of democracies being a Biden administration initiative, would be a clear signal to the Chinese that they intend to rally Australia, New Zealand, Japan. Um, together with um, with some Europeans, there's also this D10 concept being thrown around of kind of demo- 10, 10 major democracies, the G7 plus those three, um, in a in a in a coalition of you know reinforcing democratic liberal democratic norms around the world, um, and and uh, and and a lot of that would aim at China. And then lastly, there might be a kleptocratic initiative, an anti kleptocracy initiative that um, some Biden advisors have found attractive. Hudson Institute has done a lot of work on this and. I've had a lot of success with Democratic members taking this issue up, and so um, uh, that would that wouldn't be China focused necessarily, but there's certainly a Chinese component to it um, as well. Mm-hmm. Well, Peter, thank you. You really um, took took the time to extensively reply to all my questions, and I hope it are... makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, at least I share uh, certainly a lot of your opinions, and I'm really thankful for uh, you know for this uh, digital talk. I hope that next time you are going to be on that side of the Atlantic uh, in your in, in Austria, and we can actually organize once again something together. And of course, I wish you and your loved ones to stay safe uh, and sound during the COVID-19 uh, crisis and. I wish you much success with all your um, plans and undertakings. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. It's been-